If you have a Bible with you or your Mark Scripture Journal, uh, open up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, read along on the screens with us. That's all right. So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be as we begin our new series this morning. None like him. Our spring preaching series as we go uh, through the gospel of Mark. Well, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless uh, this message, this series, his word, um, before we dig right in. Lord, again, we come before you humble and acknowledging our complete dependence on who you are. God, I pray as we go through the gospel of Mark over these next few months that you will reveal yourself and who you are to us so that we may see who we need to be in light of who you are. So Lord Jesus, first and foremost, let us see you in these scriptures and then show us as people created in your image what it looks like to live for the one true God. Would you show us that today and in these weeks and months coming? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, so many people are fascinated with documentaries on TV, or maybe you like to read a good biography. I know uh, these things really interest me. In fact, recently my wife and I, uh, and I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but we recently watched a, a documentary on Princess Diana. Now, I would love to tell you that my wife forced me to watch this with her, uh, and I, I was just being a good husband. Um, but it was pretty intriguing, I'm not gonna lie, right? It was, it was pretty interesting, and, and it, it, wanted, it, it made me want to watch uh, and see exactly the, the details of, of that whole story of her life and, and how she affected so many people. And you know, I, I think, I can go ahead and turn in my man card to you, but I, I think what makes, what makes biographies and documentaries so interesting is that we are, we're, we're reading or we're watching something very special. We know in the moment that there's really no one else quite like that person that could do exactly what they did. The uniqueness of that person allowed them to do what they did that no one else probably could have done the way they did it. And so that helps, they, they help us understand how without that person, the, the events of history could have changed, right? And so we think of other key figures throughout history like George Washington. I mean, without George Washington, the founding of our nation could have gone in a completely different direction. Without the missionary Lottie Moon and her dedication to missions in China, perhaps millions of dollars that have been given to support missionaries around the world to this day would never have been given. Without Winston Churchill, perhaps the events and the outcome of World War II would have been shaped so differently. Without Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement may have never happened the way it did. Without Steve Jobs, personal technology would probably not function as it does today and we'd all be stuck with Samsung technology. <laughs> I'm biased. But what we see 
is that in each of these historical moments in time, we would have no hesitancy saying that person was uniquely qualified to do that job. That was their time. That was their moment. Over the next three months, we're going to read something very similar to a biography. We're going to look at a documentary, if you will. But it's not just another biography or documentary. It's the most important one that you will ever spend your time with. It's the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, found in the Gospel of Mark. And my hope is that you will see, my, my hope is that you will see that Jesus was uniquely qualified as the only person for the job, for the redemption of humanity. So, if you were able to purchase a journal, uh, take out your Mark journal, and uh, if you didn't get one, it's not too late. Now, we don't have any more, we did sell out. Um, so I was very thankful for that. Uh, but if you did not get one, they're really cheap on Amazon, so you can have it here by next Sunday if you go online and order it. It's just the ESV Mark Scripture Journal. Uh, but I want to give you some fast facts about the Gospel of Mark that you can uh, write down in your journal here, because this stuff is really interesting before we dive in. Uh, so the author, of course, is guess who? <laughs> Mark, right? So Mark is the author, but what's really interesting is that Mark was most likely the Apostle Peter's assistant or uh, writer. So basically what we're getting in Mark comes from the Apostle Peter, who of course lived and walked uh, with Jesus in his ministry. So that's really interesting to know. Uh, secondly, the date and the location. So we're talking Mark wrote this in the mid to late 50s uh, AD in the city of Rome, Italy. All right, so in Rome. Uh, and as far as the content goes, the overview is, you know, this is the shortest of the four Gospels. Uh, it only covers the three years of Jesus's ministry. So there's no details about his birth or childhood or anything like that. Uh, it's very action-packed. It's very fast-paced, all right? And you're going to see that as we go uh, throughout. So, so today we're going to look at the first 15 verses of chapter 1, which uh, really serve as an introduction to the rest of the documentary, if you will. Uh, and it's going to provide a lot of interesting and important backstory to Jesus' ministry and set the stage for the rest of the story to unfold. So let's begin. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So I'm going to read through these 15 verses. We're going to stop. We're going to pause and kind of explain a few things as we go. Uh, and then we'll make some, some bigger points at the end. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's kind of like a title. So back in the ancient world, this was their way of kind of giving a title, that first sentence to this book. So that's kind of like his title. He's telling us a lot, right? There's a lot of information packed in this first sentence. He immediately ascribes divinity to Jesus, right? He says that Jesus is God. He's the son of God. He is the, and, and the son of God has good news, a gospel. That's what the word gospel means, good news. So this divine being, Jesus, the son of God has good news for the world and he is Christ, 
He is the Christ, which means the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means. That's not Jesus's last name, right? That's what the word means. He is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one of God, or as the Jews would have called him, the Messiah. Verse two, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now this is interesting that Mark starts out his story about Jesus by quoting someone that lived almost 700 years before Jesus. By referring to Isaiah's prophecy, Mark is reminding us of the context of the long-awaited Messiah that the Jewish people had waited and longed for. That's the context that Jesus is coming into. Now, a lot has happened to prepare the way for Jesus to come to earth. In fact, you could go all the way back to the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden where God promised Adam and Eve that there would be an offspring of Adam and Eve, in other words, a descendant, a human descendant of Adam and Eve would one day rise up and defeat evil once and for all. You see that in Genesis chapter three, verse 15 at the very beginning of the Bible. So all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through those hundreds and thousands of years, you see this anticipation, you see this longing, this hope. Will someone rise up? Who will it be? Will someone come and put an end to the suffering of the world and put an end to sin and death itself? So there's this growing longing in the hearts of God's people all throughout human history leading up to the birth of Christ. Isaiah living about 700 years before Jesus, he's, he's a prophet and he's speaking about this. He's speaking to a rebellious people, a desperate people of God. Isaiah saw the need for an anointed one of God, a savior to permanently rescue them from their sin. But he said there would be someone who would come on the scene first and prepare the way for the Lord, for this deliverer to come. And so that's what Mark tells us first. And in the documentary, this would be where the screen goes blank and the words come on the screen about 700 years later. And then you fast forward to the year 30 AD or just around 30 AD. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, that's interesting. Quite the fashion statement there, right? It's like, I don't know how to describe John the Baptist except if you combine like Billy Graham with uh, Bear Grylls and Duck Dynasty. That's him, right? There you go. 
But here's what he's doing, and that, that sentence is there for a reason, by the way, not just so that Mark is poking fun at John the Baptist. He's referring and showing that John the Baptist is a prophet living in the wilderness, separated himself for the God's glory, even, even recognizing us back to the days of Elijah, right? So here we go. Verse seven, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, so this guy named John, eating locusts out in the wilderness, is saying these things, proclaiming a compelling message because did you notice how many people are coming out to him? Right? People are coming out in droves from all around the countryside and from the city. In Jerusalem, they're coming out to the wilderness and listening to this message because there is this anticipation, there is this hope, there is this longing for a deliverer. The long-awaited Messiah is coming and he will offer new life, a new beginning. John says, you can turn away from your sins. He says, you can be forgiven of all the things you've ever done wrong against God and others. And this baptism that he's baptizing people into the water, you know what that does? That doesn't actually forgive you. That just symbolizes what's happening in your heart. It symbolizes this new beginning, this new life that you're, that you're experiencing. And it's also a public proclamation that your hope is not in yourself. By going under the water in front of the other people out there in the wilderness, they are proclaiming, my hope is not in me and my moral effort to try to please God and try to look you know, important and, and uh, like a good person in front of other people. No, my hope is in the one true God, the long-awaited Messiah. He's coming. He's going to come to us. He's going to reside and live with us. He's going to live with us, in us, through his Holy Spirit. In other words, what this Messiah is bringing is going to change the world forever. And it's going to change you forever. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, let's be clear. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized, right? He doesn't need to have his sins washed away because he is perfect. He has never sinned. He has always been obedient to God the Father and his will. He has no sin. But by being baptized by John... Jesus is, first of all, endorsing John's message because he is the message. But Jesus is also making a strong statement to anyone familiar with Israel's history. Jesus is standing in the middle of the same river that the people of God, the nation of Israel, once crossed miraculously to enter into a promised land that God said he would give them. 
The people of Israel crossed through the Jordan River when God miraculously stopped the waters from flowing. They crossed on dry ground just as they, just as they had did in the Red Sea before. To enter into a new chapter, a new beginning, a new hope, and a new home. So that they could represent God forever to the rest of the world. Now they failed at that. God provided the land. He provided the leadership. He provided the rules and the laws they need and they failed. But now Jesus comes and he stands in that same river. And he is declaring that he is the new Israel. He is the true Israel. He has come to offer a new beginning. He's going to do what Israel failed to do. He is going to offer a new eternal home. And God himself will reside with his people. But there's also something happening here that reminds us of something else long ago. I want you to notice that God the Father is speaking Jesus, the Son, is in the water. And who is also present? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is there. All three members of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are present at this baptismal scene, signifying how important it is. Because you know what this reminds us of? Look at this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The first verse in the whole Bible where the story of history begins. Who do we see? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And who is hovering over the waters? And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and who speaks? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And who is the light of the world? You see, Jesus was present at the beginning of creation. He was there. All things were made by him and through him and for him. The scriptures tell us. God the Father was there. The Holy Spirit was there. We see them all together at the baptism of Christ. And what is being told to us? That there is a new beginning. That God is a God of creation. And he is going to create a new heart and a new life in his people. That he's going to usher in a new beginning in these same waters that his people crossed through and failed to do. Jesus will stand here with the affirmation of God, with the Holy Spirit present, and he will usher in a new beginning the world has never seen the likes of before. So when God the Father speaks here, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the one only true son of God is going to succeed in every way that we have failed. And it's this affirmation from God the Father that he's receiving, that, he is, that God is pleased with him. Why would God the Father need to say that to Jesus? Because of what's about to happen next. Look at this. Mark chapter 1, back to Mark chapter 1, verse 12. So right after Jesus' baptism, here's what happens. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with all the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now what is happening there? Well, Matthew gives us a lot more details in his account, in his documentary or biography of Jesus, if you will. But here's what's happening. After, after Jesus is affirmed by God the Father, before his public proclamation of the gospel can really begin... 
He first has to do battle with the ancient serpent. He first has to do battle in the desert with the one he came to defeat. This connects, again, to the past events of history. You see, Israel, Israel disobeyed God and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But now Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and does what Israel could not do. He obeys God the Father by resisting the temptation of Satan and winning, winning the battle against sin and temptation and death and evil, victoriously coming out of that wilderness, ready to tell the world that he is qualified. He is the one. So Satan is trying to get Jesus to question in the wilderness. Matthew tells us about this. Satan is trying to get Jesus to question the Father's love for him and his affirmation of him. But Jesus stands firm on the truth, secure in what? The Father's words. God's approval and affirmation of him from that baptism was so important because of what Jesus was about to face in the wilderness. And so he is secure in who he is as the son of God. He knows God the Father loves him. Satan cannot convince him otherwise. Verse 14. Some bad things happened to John the Baptist. He was arrested. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Once he came and stood in the waters of where Israel once stood, once he came and went into the wilderness and did what Israel could not do, Jesus comes and ushers in a new beginning. He is the only one who is qualified to do this. And so he begins his ministry and he says, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news. You've seen the bad news, you've seen it, you felt it. You feel it in deep in your soul. You see the sickness and the suffering. You see the pain and the turmoil. You see the brokenhearted relationships and all the things that have gone wrong. And now I'm telling you that there is good news. And so now Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The world is ready for this. Jesus, he's ready for this. The kingdom of God is ready for this. Not Rome, not Greece, not the Jewish religious establishment. No, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is here. It's at hand. So turn away from anything else that you've tried to find your hope in and believe in the good news of who I am and what I'm about to do. And that is the introduction to the rest of the story. We're going to see some pretty fascinating things. But today, I want us to look at these 15 verses, and I want to give you three takeaways from Mark's introduction. So if you're taking notes, continue to take, and you can write these down in your journal. Three takeaways from, God, or from Mark's <clears throat> introduction. Number one, we see here that God's message requires a response. Jesus is proclaiming something, and it's something that we cannot ignore. Now, 
I just want to apologize for anyone who's ever texted me and me not reply promptly. Because let me just tell you, it's a weakness of mine. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I am terrible at replying to text message in a prompt manner. It's not, and I, I love you, I do. <laughs> but it's just a challenge for me. I'll read it or I'll look at it and then I'll say, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll get back to that in just a second. And then two days later, I'm like, oh my goodness, I totally forgot to reply to this person's text message. But here's the thing. The message, the message that God has sent us, it's not one that we can shrug off and say, oh, I'll get to it later. The message that Jesus is proclaiming requires a response, and it must be taken seriously, it must be taken promptly. Why is that? Because Jesus, it's because of who he is. It's the, me it's, it's the message and the messenger. Both of those things combined indicate the importance. Because Jesus is the unique and only Son of God, fully God and fully man, his words therefore carry authority. He's not just another person in history like those people I mentioned earlier on. There is truly no one like him. And so his message is very different. It requires a response from all people who've ever lived. You know, some people would just look at Jesus and say, well, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's an interesting fellow. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. He talks about how Jesus' claim to be God is it's just too exclusive to ignore and not respond to. Let me read you what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people, that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. People have called this argument from C.S. Lewis the lunatic, liar, or Lord argument. So basically what C.S. Lewis is saying is that Jesus was either crazy, claiming to be God and doing all these things, a lunatic, or he was just flat out lying. But if he was lying and performing all these miracles, there, he must have been maybe Satan himself in disguise or something like that. But C.S. Lewis says, but, but if he's not those two things, then he has to be telling the truth. And I want you to know here today that if Jesus was telling the truth, 
Hear me out. I want to be sensitive. If you had a bad experience in church growing up, I want to be sensitive to you if you have really struggled to believe. I understand there are so many influences socially and relationally and psychologically that will keep us away from believing in God. But let everyone hear that if Jesus Christ was telling the truth, it affects every single one of us. If he is God, we cannot ignore that. Jesus, the Son of God, comes on the scene in the first century saying things that no one else can say. He's saying things, that he's doing things that no one else can do. He is speaking with an authority like no other. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you may not want anyone else to tell you to do that. You may, you may be so prideful that you would not want any Christian to come up to you and say, you need to repent. Okay. But when Jesus is telling you, I just want you to know you have to make a choice. His message is too great. He is too exclusive to ignore. Jesus says we must turn away from the things that we thought would give us peace and life and hope. And he says, you must turn to me for your peace and your life and your hope and find your purpose in me. You see, the good news is that Jesus died for your sins. But what we need to understand about that is that he died in your place. He didn't just make a transaction. He suffered and he bled in a way that you should have for your own rebellion against your creator. Jesus stood in your place. And he rose from the grave he rose from the grave because he has the power over sin and death. He defeated the one in the wilderness. The one who claimed to have power over sin and death. Jesus in the wilderness said, no. I'm the one that has the power over the grave. And so he rose from the grave to secure an eternal relationship with God forever for you. And when you do repent... In other words, when you turn around, when you turn away from that life and from that sin and you believe in this good news that Jesus has done for you, you begin to see, you begin to see the purpose of your life and how it fits in God's overall purpose for the world. You see that, and that's the second thing. The second thing we take away from these first 15 verses is not only that this, this message from this exclusive person requires a response, but we begin to see that God's timing is perfect. God's timing in this story and Jesus' life and in your life is always perfect. Just a few weeks ago, Christy and I and the kids were driving up to go to Barnes & Noble at the town center. And you know, when we get to the town center, it's kind of one of those things where we're like, this is what's wrong with humanity, the town center in general. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. We like it. But anyways, so we're, we're pulling up, you know, and there's always this choice. Like, well, do we park, you know, five miles away and get out the stroller and walk just so we know we can find a parking space? Or do we really roll the dice, you know, and like just let's drive through the middle and see. And let me tell you, we were pulling up right there in between P.F. Chang's and the Cheesecake Factory. And what do we see? We see someone backing out right in front of the Barnes & Noble. 
I mean, it's like amazing. It was like Christmas morning. I was so happy, right? That we could get our three kids out of the minivan and just walk right in the door. It was amazing. It was perfect timing, let me tell you. I get excited about the little things in life. But listen to this. You think that's amazing? You think that's perfect timing? You see, in those several centuries of world history, between Isaiah, man, I I was fascinated with this this week, that Mark started out his gospel by quoting someone that lived 700 years before. Why would he do that? You see, in those several centuries of world history, between Isaiah's prophecy and Jesus actually coming to earth, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, some pretty remarkable things happen that only God could orchestrate. Listen to this. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquers Palestine in the 330s BC, which means Greek culture becomes the dominating influence all around, which also means that everyone can now speak Greek, right? Everyone can now speak this one common language. Then, later on, the Romans are building, of course, the Roman Empire, their massive worldwide force. The Romans come, they take control as they expand their empire, and with them, you know what they bring? They bring an extensive system of travel, There are roads now connecting nations and countries like there have never been before. So there's one common language that everyone's speaking. Now people can travel across that part of the world so much easier with freedom to travel across borders and boundaries because of the Roman Empire. But there's something else. Also during that time, there was great religious persecution of the Jewish people. And there were also new parties of religious leaders forming and they start adding these rules and they start adding these laws for people to live by that God never intended for. They were called the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They start start living and, and telling people how to live with all these extra things that God never intended, that were never written in the Bible, that were never there. And so these rules become burdensome on the Jewish people. But you have this common language now. You have this ease of travel and you have this burden. You see, all of these things are the results of much back and forth political and power struggles, but they bring about the perfect context for a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior, a great hope to enter into the scene, to enter into the world with a world-changing message. God was orchestrating the events of human history so that the timing would be perfect for a seemingly insignificant man from a small town called Nazareth in Galilee to proclaim a message and do miracles that no one has ever seen and asked 12 guys to come around him and help him in his ministry for three years, God was orchestrating the events of the world 
so that that one man and that one message and what he did on the cross could spread across one language and travel easily with the apostle Paul and others as they start traveling into the other parts of what is now Turkey and Greece and Italy and sharing this good news all across the Roman Empire. Do you see that? And the hope, the anticipation of the Jewish people that some deliverer would come was there all along. But think about this. If our God is a God who can move world empires at will for his purposes, now you tell me why he can't move in your life for the purposes he has designed and created for you. Oh, us of little faith. Oh, how we try to dumb down our God. How we try to make him so much smaller and less capable than he actually is. Our God is capable. Our God knows what is going on in the events of history and he knows what is going on in your life. He knows your heart This might sound crazy. God knows you better than you know yourself. Man, we forget about that. We doubt his timing in our lives. We doubt his purpose for us. See, just as God's timing was perfect for Jesus to come into the world, so is his timing perfect for you to live where you are now. The place you live, the people you live with, and the people you live around, do you not think that God has you there for a reason? He has you exactly where you are for a reason. And you may, you may say, Pastor Andrew, I don't like where I am, and that's okay. It may not be comfortable. And we grieve that together. But what we know is that God is good, that he is working all things together for those who love him for his good purposes for his glory and for ultimately your good, if not now, then in eternity forever. We can trust a God who orchestrates the events of human history to also orchestrate the events of our daily lives. And that leads us, finally, that if we, if we understand this and we see that he's not only in control, but he cares. Number three, the lastly, we see God's affirmation is sufficient. His message requires a response. His timing in your life is perfect. But maybe what you need to hear and what you need to know more than anything today is that his affirmation is all you ever need. We really cannot underestimate the importance of what happened at Jesus' baptism when God the Father said, you are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. You see, when we put our faith in Christ, you know what happens? You become united with him. Paul talks about this in Romans 6, verse 5. He says, for if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And what that means is that you are united with Christ, and so everything he gets, you get. So that means because of Jesus, God the Father now can look at you. Because you are united and in Christ through salvation and faith in him, God the Father can now look at you. And you know what he says? 
You are my beloved child. And with you, I am well pleased. And we don't deserve that. I don't deserve for God to look at me and tell me that he loves me. I don't even deserve for God to look at me. But when he looks at you, he sees the goodness of Jesus. If you have truly repented and believed and responded to that message that Jesus is talking about, that he's proclaiming, if you have turned away from your sin and you have trusted Christ, then God looks at you and he doesn't see your filthiness. He doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness credited to your heart. He says, you are my beloved child. I am so pleased with you. I look at my kids and they disappoint me sometimes. Yes, I mean, especially around bedtime, let me tell you. But man, I cannot look at them and not think, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. These are my beloved children. I am so pleased with them. And I just want you to know that if you're doubting it at all, that is exactly how God looks at you if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He loves you so much. God's wrath is no longer directed at us because Jesus took it on himself. If we rest secure in the love of God, if we rest secure in the approval of God, you know what that means? When we recognize this, it means that we don't need the approval and the affirmation of the world. You see, that's, what, that's really what that temptation in the wilderness with Jesus and Satan is telling us. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, it was the affirmation of God, it was his close communion with God that led him to obey. It was security. It was knowing that he was secure in God's approval and that's all he needed to live in obedience in the deepest, hardest moments. Nothing else compares to the affirmation of God. And when you embrace that, when you dwell on the goodness and love and affirmation and approval of God for you through Jesus, you know what? That leads you to run away from sin. It leads you to live in obedience. Because then when you're tempted as Jesus was, you look. You look at the temptation, you look at the sin, and you say, you know what, that might be fun for a moment, but there is no way. There's no way I'm doing that. There's no way I'm giving into that. Because I have everything I need, truly. The creator of all things the creator of all people. He knows me. He loves me. I am his child. And I'm not giving myself to anything else. It's that, it's that. It's that recognition. It's that acceptance. It's that awareness. God's affirmation that he gave on Jesus and Jesus gives to us. That's what leaves us, or leads us to live an obedient life. Because Jesus is fully God, he has placed you where you are for a purpose and he has the power to lead and guide you through it. And because he is fully human, he has gone before you. He knows what you're going through so he can walk with you through every season of life. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Can you be confident? Can you really be confident? Can you really approach the throne of God? Yes, you can. Because Jesus has gone before you. We may receive mercy and you may receive grace in your time of need. You see, only Jesus, fully God and fully man, only someone with authority from God the Father and with the willingness to identify with humanity, to become human, only Jesus, the God-man, can come on the scene proclaiming this world-changing message with authority like this. And even more, only he can do what it's going to take to accomplish redemption for the world. Only a divine being could live a perfect life so he could stand in our place and die for our sins. But only a human could represent us on the cross. Jesus is both. And so that's Mark's introduction. The time is right, and Jesus is the only person for this job. I can't wait for us to go through this on this journey together over the next three months. As we look at the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see some pretty fascinating things. But I want us to end today. Kyle's going to play a song for us as we close. But I want us to end today with this. First of all, have you responded to the message? And I think I made it clear earlier. I'm not asking if you responded to me. I'm not asking if you responded to some kind of cultural Christianity. I'm not, re- I'm not asking if you responded to something in this world. I'm asking, have you responded to Jesus Christ himself? Because as we have seen very clearly, you absolutely can. Because he's gone before you. He has suffered, he's been tempted, he's been ridiculed, he's been mocked. He took your shame, he took your sin on himself so that you can approach God with confidence and ask for his mercy and his grace. 